Okay, as we come together tonight, I don't think there are any uh, important announcements just now other than on Thursday around 11 o'clock, there, there is the prep school class meeting online uh, conducted by uh, Mark Friedrich and John Williamson and others. And then also on Monday night, Monday nights, uh, Jeff Phipps is conducting a Bible study for those in Camp Rete. So um, those are the two things to be aware of. If you want information about the Camp Rete Bible study on Monday nights, you can go to the Camp Rete website, and that information is there. Usually I begin with a group of promises that are important for all of us to memorize, and hopefully by my continued repetition of these promises, many of you have memorized them. When I actually have people in front of me, although there's one or two tonight, uh, when I actually have a regular congregation in front of me, it's nice to see how many people can lip-sync along with me as I say these promises. One of those that I use is from Psalm 55.22. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Now, that phrase at the end may seem a little odd. We've gone over this before, but what that means is that our faith should not be shaken because God is faithful to his promises, and so he is going to uh, take care of us and provide for us. Psalm 37, 4 and 5 go on to say, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Psalm fifty-six, eleven says, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In this time of this pandemic, there is a lot of fear. There is a lot of worry. There are a lot of things that are being done by Christians that indicate that they're fearful, they're worried, they're concerned. They may not admit to it, but they are. And we'll talk about this a little as we go through uh, this this uh, lesson this evening. It's the fear of the unknown. Anybody says, oh, no, I'm not afraid. Well, we are to some degree. It may not be that we bordered into sin, uh, but we're definitely concerned because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We didn't know what tomorrow would bring three months ago. A year or two years ago, we had no idea what the next month would bring. We thought we did because the patterns were consistent. And so we knew pretty much from day to day, from year to year, what we could plan on, what we could do. This last week, I made my reservations to go to Kiev in in January, as I always do. But I have no idea if that's going to come to pass. I mean, so much, we have no idea. We, we are sitting in the midst of this unknown. And when people don't have a bedrock faith in the scriptures, in God's providential control, and the goodness and the love of God, then this leads to a tremendous amount of fear, anxiety. And that those are always areas that allow the sin nature to just uh, develop itself and exercise its muscles. So we always have to be careful with that. And so these promises that I have gone through this evening, uh, Psalm 55, 22, and Psalm 37, 4, and 5, and Psalm 56, 11, are just some of the promises that we all should be memorizing and reciting over and over again because they stabilize our emotions and they refocus our thinking. And that is critical today because 
we don't know what's going on, and if you pay much attention to the news or you pay much attention to the Internet, uh, you're going to read so many rumors and conspiracy theories and so many different views that it's unsettling. So we just need to relax. We'll talk about this later on. Before we, as we prepare to come together to read, study, analyze the word and to think about it and think through its implications, we need to make sure that we are walking by means of the Spirit. When we sin, and we all sin, and we all sin a lot more than we even think we do, but when we sin, and we know it, we need to confess that sin. First uh, John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge them, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins, and then he graciously wipes the slate clean. He cleanses us of all sin. And so we always begin with the silent prayer, time to refocus our thinking, stabilize our emotions, and focus on that which is of real value, and that is the Word of God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to, that you are our rock. You are the rock of our salvation. You are our fortress. You are our strong tower. You are our rock of defense. You are the foundation that gives our life stability. You are the God of truth that gives our life focus. And Father, we're thankful that you have provided so much for us in your word. And now as we continue to study in this uh, somewhat difficult passage, so many things going on that are unpleasant to look at and uh, talk about, we pray that you would give us insight. For God, the Holy Spirit has revealed this to us in order to teach us lessons and to uh, instruct our thinking, to correct our thinking, to rebuke the wrong thoughts and ideas that we have, that we might get straightened out, get our priorities right, focus on you. And we pray that you would help us to concentrate and think objectively about ourselves as we look into the mirror of your word to see what it tells us about ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Samuel chapter 16. Second Samuel chapter 16. And we find ourselves in verse 15. I don't know how far we're going to actually get this evening, but we're going to see this setup here of arrogance. In the previous section, we've talked about God's grace and how David was grace-oriented, how he passed these various tests. He didn't pass them all, but he passed most of them and demonstrated through them all, a grace orientation, something that is necessary for every single one of us, is to relax. None of us is less of a sheep than any other. And as I frequently say, God calls us sheep, and that's not a compliment, that even the best of us is still a sheep. That means we don't follow instruction very well. We have no sense of direction whatsoever if it weren't for the shepherd and for us the shepherd is God Psalm 23 the Lord my shepherd he shepherds us through his word of God 
and the under-shepherds of the church, the pastors, teach the Word of God in order to provide guidance and direction. But, you know, even we pastors are sheep. And we all have sin natures, we all go astray, and we all have to be brought back by the Lord who takes, takes care of all things. So we need this focus on grace orientation because humility is essential in any situation like we find ourselves in. Humility and grace orientation cannot exist where fear and worry dominate from the sin nature. Now, as we have looked at this narrative starting back in chapter 15, we've seen seven, seven different scenes in the rebellion of Absalom. This is one of the most dramatic sections of Scripture. Uh, there is so much that is going on and so many lessons that we need to learn. So we learned about Absalom in his arrogance, arrog- any kind of revolt against authority, an illegitimate revolt against authority, is always generated by arrogance. And we see that in Absalom in the first 13 verses of 15. Then the scene shifts to David. David hears about it, and he flees from Jerusalem. Now, we've slowed down here because everything that we've been talking about for I don't know how many lessons, because we diverted to the Psalms, has all been taking place within a very short amount of time until we get down into the middle part, later part of chapter 16, because it didn't take that long, two hours at the most, for David to get his people together, leave the old city of Jerusalem, head north uh, up the valley, uh, the Kidron Valley, and then just begin to cross over the Mount of Olives, two, maybe three hours. And what we learn in verse 15 here is this is when Absalom comes in from the south, when he enters into the city. So all of this is taking place in a very short amount of time, and there's a lot that's going on in David's head, just like it would be in our head. There's a lot of emotions that are taking place, and we saw those as we studied in Psalm 3 and Psalm 62, Psalm 64, reflected on those things, and recognized that David isn't you know, isn't doing the right thing or thinking the right thing every second that he's walking along. He's got those mixed emotions that come flooding into our souls every time we hit these kinds of crises. And as he is encountering this, not just the external threat of, of, the, of the rebellion, but the internal threat of the fear and the anxiety and the worry and all of these other things that come along because of the uncertainty, What's he doing? He's thinking through who God is. He's thinking through God's plan for his life, and that is what stabilizes him and makes him a great leader and a great believer. Doesn't mean he never failed, because we know he failed miserably, and he fails a little bit in this, but most of the time he's, he's doing pretty well. So this is a section we just finished covering, and then the next section after that is wh- where we see Absalom entering into Jerusalem. This goes from 1615 to 17. Uh, 14. The next session, sections are relatively brief. Uh, Hushai informs David of what's going on in 15 to 23, and then Absalom will move against David. Three verses, 2 Samuel 17, 24 to 26, and then David is going to finally move across the Jordan. So that's only 14 miles away from Jerusalem. So again, we see this is 
short distances, close in geography, and the time frame isn't extensive. And then probably a few days later is when this battle battle takes place. The framework we're using to to view this, the glasses we're putting on to understand what's going on is this contrast between grace orientation and humility on the one hand, uh, which is divine viewpoint, and human viewpoint, the arrogance that is driving uh, various different people on both both sides. Uh, we don't have grace driving people on both sides, but we have arrogance driving people on both sides. We have arrogance in David's camp represented by Abishai, and we have arrogance on the other side, Ahithophel, uh, Absalom, and others. We see the grace orientation of Hushai, who goes over as a as a spy inside of Absalom's camp. Human viewpoint solutions are always driven by arrogance. Arrogance disguises itself. And many, many people think, oh, I'm not arrogant. And even that's a product of their own arrogance. And that's why I spend time talking, talking about it, because we have these trends. Those trends of our sin nature are towards either asceticism Yes, asceticism is a trend of people's sin nature. There's nothing good about asceticism. It's a sinful trend. On the other side, you have a licentiousness. It's just the opposite. It's just as sinful. You know, one's not better than the other. Uh, one is not worse than the other because they both flow out of the less patterns and the arrogance of the sin nature. One leads to moral degeneracy. The other leads to immoral degeneracy. One looks at life, this is a better way, but its end is still death, Proverbs 14.12. And the divine viewpoint looks at life from the viewpoint of God's word, where the, the uh, psalmist writes, this is my comfort. That What his comfort is, is in the word. That's what's in the second stanza. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. It is the word that is our comfort. So we looked at the... <coughs> Excuse me, the last time in the arrogance of the human viewpoint. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Human viewpoint is the suppression of truth in unrighteousness. For as Jesus said, thy word is truth. What we're talking about here is the uppercase capital T truth that is from that is from the word of God, from revelation. Not inference, not theology, but that which the Word of God specifically and directly teaches. So we always have to watch out for this evil, evil little enemy within the sin nature. There are three enemies in the Christian life, which we've studied many times. The, the Satan, who is the accuser of God. There is the world system or the cosmic system, using the Greek word cosmos with a K, and this represents the thinking of Satan. The thinking of Satan has two dimensions to it. Both start with the letter A. One is autonomy and independence of God. That's what arrogance is. is it's me. It's all about me. I'm independent. Let me live my life my way. Do everything the way I think it ought to be done, when I think it ought to be done, according to the way I think it ought to be done. Methodology is just as bad as having wrong thoughts. A right thing must be done a right way. A right way done a wrong way is wrong. We have a seminary student here who wrote a paper, a critique he was supposed to write. He got marked down because what he did primarily was to critique the methodology and say, say that the, according to what was written, it was done according to a, a bad methodology. Uh, 
So he got marked down on it. Let me tell you, when Tommy Ice and I were at Dallas Seminary, we were constantly fighting uh, this idea that uh, methodology was neutral. And we got just as much in trouble for doing that as anything else. You can do a right thing, but if you do it the wrong way, it's just as wrong. Methodology is neutral. And uh, that has infected much of evangelical theology today. And, you know, we've studied and we'll study a little bit more of that on Sunday morning in Ephesians 2, that it is Christ who builds the church. It is not the methodology of these mega churches and the church growth people who, who build the church. That's what I mean. Methodology isn't neutral. How you do what you do is as important as what you are doing. So we have a sin nature who drives this, driven by arrogance. I developed this uh, a little more, added to this uh, arrogant skill diagram. We start with self-absorption. Self-absorption, it's all about me. And so the more we're absorbed with ourselves, the more we indulge ourselves. We indulge our thoughts. We indulge the selfish, self-centered thoughts that work in our soul to destroy our soul. And this happens from an extremely early age because we're born corrupted and we're born with the sin nature. And you know, we'll, we'll never fully understand all of this, but I firmly believe that a lot of the sinful trends and habits that so plague us as we get older in life are set by these thought patterns. Our sin nature develops into comfortable habits long before we are volitionally aware when we are still two, three, or four years of age, we are uh, the computers of our minds are reacting and responding to all of the things that are going on around us and thinking of ways that we get our way and that we can manipulate the world around us to make us more comfortable. And that's all self-absorption. It drives us to self-indulgence. And then as we uh, mature, we begin to think in terms of, well, defending our self-indulgence. Of course, it's all about me. And I'm going to tell you why it's all about me. And we lay out all our rationales about why me first is the best. And that self-justification develops into a self-entitlement. We think we're entitled to the affections of others. We think we're entitled to the comforts in life. We think we're entitled to people responding to us the way we want them to respond to us. And when we start carrying all of that, that mentality with us into friendships and into marriage and into careers, if we don't have it modified by, uh, by biblical truth and have some controls on the arrogance of our sin nature, then it will spell disaster. That's why Scripture says in an accurate observation, pride goes before fall. Arrogance precedes a fall. It is always self-destructive. But we deceive ourselves into thinking it's not. So self-deception builds. We build fantasies. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in unbelief, the creature worships other creatures and rejects the creator. So when he does that, he has made himself a god. This is self-deification where we put ourselves on the throne of our heart, and that leads to even more self-absorption. And this is just a downward spiral that just goes on and on and on from the 
uh, very, very beginning of our lives. Now, as we got into this the last time, we were contrasting David's grace orientation with the human viewpoint pagan solution. We're going to see a lot more about that. We ended up the last time pointing out how Abishai, Abishai wants David to uh, to kill Saul a couple of times. Go back to Second uh, Samuel chapter twenty-four, and we see problems there. And we go to second, I mean, First Samuel twenty-four and First Samuel twenty-six, where David gets an opportunity to kill Saul. And the first time it is the men of Israel, the men with him, all the men with him, who say, "Look, God, it's God, must be God's will. Look, God put him in your control. It's got to be God's will. And then you'll be king." And, and you know, it reminds me of those cartoons we saw, where you have a little good angel on one shoulder and a little demon on the other shoulder, and one's whispering one thing in your ear, the other's whispering another thing in your ear. And here he's he's got the doctrine in his soul, the biblical truth in his soul, saying, "No, you can't take his life. He's the Lord's anointed." And then the men around him are saying, "This is it. This is God's will." Everybody justifies their heresy with God's will. So you have to have discernment to know the heretics from the good guys. And so David does. And so he doesn't go along with it. And then Abishai in chapter 26 wants him to take Saul's life when they sneak into the camp. And Abishai again here, now he wants him to take the life of of Shimei, who has been uh, uh, cursing David and uh, reviling David and all of these things, and uh, so David makes his decision to let Shimei go along and continue uh, to, ken- to continue to curse him. So we've been talking about what the Bible teaches about this arrogance of human viewpoint, and we live in a culture today where we are much more like the Babylon of Daniel's day than we are uh, the Jerusalem of David's day. We are living amongst a pagan culture, a pagan society where the predominant views are shaped by arrogance. They're shaped by people's sin natures. They're not, they're not shaped by these other things. I'm doing more and more research for a book that someday maybe it'll see the light of day. We're going to start teaching through this material again on Thursday night, uh, dealing with uh, what the Bible teaches about uh, politics and leadership and decision-making in the voting booth, something I did about 12 years ago. We need to do it again. We've, I've got a lot more material, thought through a lot of things uh, since then, but the key issue here is going to be on worldview and how people think. And what is tragic is in a recent study that has come out, a joint project uh, that was done along with the Barna Group, which is a Christian polling organization, the discovery that among evangelicals, because outside of evangelicals, nobody's going to have a Christian worldview, that among evangelicals, fewer than 10% have anything close to a Judeo-Christian worldview. I'm not even going to say a biblical worldview, but a Judeo-Christian worldview comes out of the Bible. Fewer than 10%. Now, if I were a pessimist or a pessimistic prophet, I would say, we're toast, we're done, fold up the tent, let's go. But yet God is still in control. 
But we, we've got a serious problem here is that this nation as a whole, even the evangelicals, those who are going to church every Sunday, don't have a clue how to think about life from a biblical framework. And that is, that is really tragic. So we need to learn how to think about life and the decisions we make, especially the decisions we make, uh, make when we vote. Because all of this comes out of a, of a biblical worldview and understanding that. But when arrogance rules, then it produces a lot of just, just human, uh, human viewpoints. So we're down to this third scene. Here we go. Where Absalom enters Jerusalem in uh, 1615. So we come to 2 Samuel 15. Um, 1530, uh, come to 1615. Let me, I got this slide out of order. There we go. Uh, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. Now here's the conflict. You know, every drama's got a great conflict. And the conflict now is going to be between Ahithophel, the wisest of the wise counselors of David, brilliant man, and Hushai, Hushai the archite, David's friend, who now comes to, comes to Absalom. So in 2 Samuel uh, 16, 15, we see this situation where uh, Absalom comes together uh, and he has with him the men of Israel, a phrase that usually refers to the leadership of Israel. And then we read in the last phrase, last clause, Ahithophel was with him. The writer wants us to pay attention to this, wants us to pay attention to this emphasis because now the scene, it really isn't about Absalom, even though you know, he's the subject of the sentence. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, it's really about Ahithophel and the counsel of Ahithophel and how God is going to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel in this challenge of counselors uh, between Ahithophel and Hushai. Now, when we look at this phrase, the people, Ha'am, the people of Israel, Ha'am Israel, and the men of Israel, this is a term that refers to leadership. We see it in passages such as Deuteronomy 29.10. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, Moses is speaking, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, and then how you have this appositional phrase, all the men of Israel. So all the men of Israel is describing who? Not all the males in Israel, but all the leaders, the leaders, your tribes, your elders, your officers. So that phrase, the men of Israel here, in the context with Absalom is talking about his leadership team. All of the military leaders, all the people he has for administration, they have come uh, come to Jerusalem and... Ahithophel was with him. If you were listening to an opera, Ahithophel would have his own theme, and you would hear that theme just as this verse is beginning and know that Ahithophel is coming onto the stage. Now, what's interesting as we look at this, what's interesting as we look at this is we have to go back to 2 Samuel 15 and 15 and see some of the references 
to uh, Ahithophel to learn a little bit about him. We don't know a, uh, a tremendous amount about Ahithophel, and I'm looking for the slide on this, just a minute. And Well, I sort of, something's going on here and I can't see things. All right. Where are we? Well, it seems like something got messed up there. Okay. Anyway, look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 12. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite. Now, he's from a village called Gilo. That's what that means. David's counselor from his city from Gilo while he offered sacrifices. So Absalom is offering sacrifices. See, human viewpoint leaders and rebels and arrogant people, in other words, bad and evil politicians, always cloak their actions in religious language and religious trappings. And so just because people will wear their Christianity on their shirt sleeve doesn't mean that they're operating on a biblical or Judeo-Christian worldview. Classic example was President Jimmy Carter. Always wore his Christianity on his shirt sleeve, but he, he's not, he, he was a liberal Baptist. He still is a liberal Baptist. And he's a, he's a pro-Arab, anti-Zionist liberal Baptist. He has no biblical truth in his soul. Uh, yet he had this very legalistic sort of religi- religious type of Christianity. And so he goes through the motions and uses all the language and all of the verbiage. But we've had other men in in the White House in history who didn't write a lot about their personal Christianity or didn't talk a lot about their personal Christianity. But then when you discover their private writings, they wrote a lot about it. They had deep biblical Faith. Go back to some of the early uh, founding fathers like uh, George Washington and uh, James Madison, who later became more uh, a little more more secularist. But early on, he had a great biblical faith. And you come to some others. You had some that seemed to have a pretty uh, rough exterior, like Andrew Jackson, but they had uh, at at a core a solid belief in Christ, but not a lot of biblical truth in their soul, but they understood some basic divine institutions on some things, but really messed up on other things. So it's always a mixed bag, and we can't really go to presidents and founders and say that they were all perfect because they're like us. They weren't, but they, many of them were influenced by sound, uh, sound biblical truth, by a solid Judeo-Christian heritage, and they, they understood that. So when we look at 1512, we see this introduction of Ahithophel, and we see this introduction of Absalom's arrogance and his uh, pseudo-religious devotion to God offering, offering sacrifices. Then the next time we see Ahithophel mentioned is in verse 31. So you go down to verse 31, and this is when someone told David that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So this is really an interesting, interesting line, and I'm pretty sure I've got a slide on that here. 
No, right here. Yeah, pray that turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. The NET translates it a little better. The idea of make the advice of Ahithophel foolish. And we have to understand that. We'll talk about that a little more in, in just a minute. And then in verse 34, we read, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. This is when David is giving instruction to Hushai as his undercover agent. It says, go back to the city, tell Absalom you'll be his servant, uh, just as you were, just as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now be your servant. And then David gives him his orders. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Now, that's, we're going to go back and look at that passage in a minute, but that's important to understand. David's prayer, when he says, Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, and then David takes action. Notice, not like a lot of passive Christians today who think that the faith rest drill is just, I'm going to trust God and do nothing. The faith rest drill involves an active Trust in God where, on the one hand, you do what, what you can do under volitional responsibility under divine institution number one. You do what you can do, and you leave the, the rest and the results in God's hand. When David prays in, in verse 31, he doesn't tell God how to do it. He, get, he prays for the result that Ahithophel's advice would fall on the floor that it would be foolishness. It would not be taken as wisdom. He didn't tell God how to bring that about. But then David takes a step with Hushai that can set it up. He's going to send Hushai in there so that God can use that against Ahithophel. But he has no idea how that's going to happen. He just does what he can do within the framework of his leadership and leaves the results to God. Now, it's interesting that in 1 Chronicles, we have a couple of other things mentioned regarding Ahithophel. In 1 Chronicles 27, 33, we read, Ahithophel was the king's counselor, and Hushai the archite was the king's companion. So we see here that his counselor, that is his chief advisor on all things military, economic, uh, uh, social, everything. Ahithophel is his chief advisor, his right-hand man, chief of staff, and his, his friend, his close friend is Hushai. So these two men know each other, they're close, and they work together in David's administration. And then in verse 34 of First Chronicles 27, he lists other key people after Ahithophel. So Ahithophel is the top uh, person in, in his cabinet, as it were, his chief of staff, his chief advisor. After Ahithophel was Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah, then Abiathar, who was the high priest, and the general of the king's army was, uh, was Joab. So this is what we see in terms of how the scripture introduces them. Now, if you read through this, if you, if you really think about what's going on and catch the drama of what's happening, then you'll come to this conclusion. A principle that you watch is whenever we have rebellion, there's always arrogance at work. A rebel against a divinely instituted leader, and no leader was probably more divinely instituted than either Saul, who's anointed king by, by Samuel, 
and then David, who's anointed king by Samuel, and then after that, Samuel. We know those are God's specifically chosen leaders over, over Israel. And so to rebel against them was the height of arrogance. That's why David, in those two tests in 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26, refuses to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, knowing that to operate on arrogance like that would be self-destructive. We have to pay a lot of attention to that in our crazy, crazy world today because you have a lot of people who are very unhappy with a lot of government. And you hear a lot of people on both sides who want to completely step outside the Constitution and take matters in their own hands. And this is extremely dangerous, and it's, a lot of it is just pure arrogance and the way it's handled and talked about. It may be a right thing, but it's a wrong way to do it. And it always ends up in arrogance. And the left, if you want to know how the left would handle things, just look at what's happening in a number of these blue states where the governors are shutting down churches. I heard that the governor of Illinois said that the churches should stop meeting for a year. That's insane. They're trampling all over First Amendment rights because as as liberals with their non-Judeo-Christian worldview, what they think they need to do is, is just take over and solve the problem. This, a pandemic isn't a man-made problem, and it doesn't have a man-made solution. It may in terms of some things related to medicine, but the way it's working right now, and I'm going to talk about this a little more in a minute, is we're living in a world where God is doing something, allowing something to take place that is, that is remarkable. And we'll come back. I want to talk about that a little more, but we need to move forward. So it's clear that Ahithophel is arrogant. In fact, in the Talmud, they described Ahithophel as a man, quote, whose great wisdom was not received in humility as a gift from heaven, and so became, it became a stumbling block to him. God gifted him in a great way with a great intellect and great insight, but because he was arrogant, that that led to his destruction, and he ends up, at the end of his story, committing suicide and destroys himself. So he is arrogant, and he ends up being self-destructive. So we have to understand um, the danger of slipping into arrogance. Arrogance is driven by self-absorption. And so when it comes to looking at Ahithophel, he's probably driven uh, to a large degree, or motivated to a large degree, by the fact that he is very likely the grandfather of Bathsheba, and he is bitter and angry with David over the way he uh, uh, committed adultery with his granddaughter and then conspired to have his grandson-in-law, who was also another one of the mighty men uh, 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 killed in battle, uh, put into a difficult uh, situation. And so at one time, Ahithophel was very, very close to David and a close advisor to David, but then because of his arrogant reaction when he saw David's sin, uh, he turned against David. And David writes about this in Psalm 41.9, and it is um, more than likely that uh, Ahithophel is a type of Judas because Jesus uses Psalm 41.9 to describe uh, Judas's rebellion. And Psalm 41.9 says, Even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, 
who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And that's uh, referred to in John chapter 13, verse 18. So we have Ahithophel who has uh, picked up on uh, David's, David's rebellion. He's reacted to it, and he's now gone over to the dark side. And as a result, the nation is going to be split in this rebellion. Now, I want you to put yourself in the situation of being in Israel at this time. What you've got is a kingdom that is starting to fracture. Actually, it's already been fragmenting because uh, of the way Absalom has been wooing and enticing people to his side through telling all of these lies about the government. What happens is people who don't have a lot of information, which is most of us, it doesn't matter how much you read on the Internet. It doesn't matter what your good trusted friends tell you. We don't know most about what's going on. I'm appalled sometimes. When I get to a point where I learn something, something is exposed that happens at upper secret levels of government, and it's just the opposite of what everybody was saying. I mean, left or right, everybody had their conspiracy views, but there is a upper-level operation where these people are talking to each other and making plans that have, that's never reported, they never admit to, that it's never put out on the news, but it, it, it's almost like there is a, and this is why conspiracy theories gain ground, because people sense this, that there's stuff going on that we have no idea about, and it doesn't involve any elected officials. And, of course, we're seeing a lot of evidence right, of that uh, right now with the what's unfolding about uh, General Michael Flynn and how he seems to have been set up by a cabal of various uh, people in different intelligence agencies and the FBI and various politicians and indications of recent news items would take this all the way to the Oval Office during the Obama years. That, that, uh, and some have said that even uh, President Obama was knowledgeable about this conspiracy to take down Michael Flynn. And those kinds of things create an, a huge distrust of government in the people. And we don't always know what to believe because the media doesn't do a good investigative job. And so into that vacuum comes a lot of fear, worry, and people make things up. Think about what it was like in Israel. You don't have all the communication things that are going on today. All of a sudden, you, you've, you've been hearing for four or five years these things that Absalom is really lying about, but you don't know that, so you think it's true. He's the king's son. Why would he be lying to us? And so you hear this stuff going on. All of a sudden, you hear this call from Absalom to uh, bring up the men of Israel, and so he calls up these troops, and now you hear that he's marching on Jerusalem, and David is fleeing. And which side are you going to be on? Well, Absalom's the young man. He's going to bring fresh ideas into government. Look how handsome he is. He, he, he's got to have skill and wisdom. He learned it from his father, David, and David's gotten old, and look at these sins that he's been committing, and how can we really trust him? He just has this facade of being a Christian, but, but look at what he did. And so in the midst of that, here's David having to flee from, from Jerusalem. And so we see these, these episodes that are that are taking place. And in this short time, leaving the city, and then he goes along the Kidron Valley and up over the shoulder of the Mount of Olives. He's attacked by Ziva 
and Shemai. Now, why are they important? Because the first is connected to the house of Saul through, through his master Mephibosheth, and the other is Benjamite. So it shows, it reveals this deep division within the nation of Israel. And this, this happened, remember, when David became king after Saul died? He's only king of Judah, of Judea, for seven years in Hebron. And then finally, the, the tribes all unite under him. But there's this, this undercurrent, this, this percolating discontent. And it sort of surfaces now. And so the people are, are shifting over to follow, uh, follow Absalom. Well, after David dies and Solomon becomes king, and towards the end of his reign when Solomon dies, what happens? The nation fractures. It splits in two. Now, that's God's discipline, and God had raised up Jeroboam specifically to lead that rebellion. That was the only divinely authorized rebellion in history. God raises up Jeroboam to be king in the north, but it's those northern tribes against Judah. And so the nation fragments. And we live in a world today where our nation is fragmented. It's fragmented over, over many, many different things. And it just seems to get uh, exacerbated. So we see this time right now with David. It's a time of uncertainty. It's a time of chaos. How's it going to affect the markets? I mean, you're talking about farmers. They've got to get their goods to market. They've got to sell their vegetables, their produce, their cattle, their sheep. How's all this going to happen if all the men are off at war? These are extremely practical uh, matters. Same thing we're facing with this coronavirus. How are people going to pay the bills? How are they going to pay the rent? How are they going to pay uh, their mortgage payments? How are they going to uh, put their kids through school? Is there going to be a school? Can they go off to college next year? What's that going to look like? We have no idea. Where did this come from? Where, how did this happen and what happened? Rumor after rumor. The Chinese did it. Uh, they bought the virus from the uh, from the Canadians, and they're going to manufacture it as some sort of biological warfare in this secret lab in Wuhan. And all of these, you, the, the conspiracy theories are a dime a dozen until you don't know what to believe. And what happens is Christians start spreading all these rumors too. I can't tell you how much garbage, I don't know that it's all garbage, that I get in my email every day. Watch this, see this, look at this. Five times every day, I get an email from somebody who ought to know better, and it's an hour and 30-minute video of something, and they say, this is the most important thing. You need to watch it. I have 3,500 books in my library I haven't read, and they're 10 times more important, every one of them, than anything that I'm going to learn in that hour-and-a-half video. And I get four or five different ones like that every single day. Now, I know that's given to me with good intent, but folks... Our mission isn't to expose conspiracies. Our mission is to teach the word of God to everyone. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, I want you to go into all the world and explore all these conspiracy theories and figure out what's right. That's garbage. I got an article here. I had several articles similar to this that all came across my desk this week, my computer desktop. This is from uh, Christianity Today, from their website, and uh, it is titled, On Christians Spreading Corona Conspiracies, Gullibility is Not a Spiritual Gift. 
for 35, 40 years as a pastor, I have railed against the gullible, idiotic things, the gullible, idiot Christians, and the idiotic things that they fall prey to. Madeline Murray O'Hare has got a huge petition to take down the the uh, Federal Communications Network take all Christians off the radio. That popped up so many times that the, um, uh, who, who was it, the, the, what is it, the FCA, Federal Communications, FCC, Federal Communications, uh, that they had to hire like 500 extra full-time people just to deal with all the mail that came in. That was back in the 80s. But it cropped up in the 90s three times, and it continued into the Internet age in the early 2000s. This is a rumor that never dies. And it's only one of hundreds that I can put out there. And, and this, this article goes through lots of different corona conspiracies that Christians are just buying into, and the world just thinks we're idiots. This does not honor Christ. Not only that, it's a violation of the Word of God. It's e-gossip. That's what we see here. It's e-gossip. We are guilty of passing on a lot of unsubstantiated rumors because it feeds our political and personal ideologies. And this is what's going on. It's just gossip. It's gossip that's not on the t- a sin of the tongue. It's a sin of the keyboard. And we just love it. We want to be the first ones to get the inside information. It stimulates us. It makes us happy. We get out on Facebook or Twitter, and we see these things, and we want to be the first one to tell our friends about this latest thing that's happened. How much time are we spending doing that in contrast to how much time we're spending in prayer and reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God and developing our personal walk with the Lord? I'm not saying we shouldn't be in touch with what's going on, but what is happening in so many people's lives is that they just get this salacious thrill from coming up with the latest in all of the ways the other side is trying to take down America. And do I believe there are conspiracies? I certainly do. We're getting evidence of that with, what's, with my, this whole Michael Flynn thing, that there certainly was a, a cabal within the Obama administration that was using their power to try to disenfranchise the voters who elected in a legal election uh, Donald Trump to be the president. Whether you like Trump or not, that it was a legal election, and everything about it was according to the Constitution. And no one has the right to try to reverse uh, a legal election. And so things like that that are true just spawn unbelievable numbers of other other uh, conspiracy theories, and they just go on and on and on. And certainly there's a lot of things about the COVID pandemic that we need to find out about, that there are people that are investigating. And every one of us has read a lot, watched a lot. Some of us have reached extremely firm convictions only to discover in another week or two with new information that those convictions were built on shifting sand. And so then what happens is when we reach these firm convictions and arrogance, if somebody doesn't agree with us, then they're wrong. And we become divided over the silliness of all of these different views of, of what is going on in the world today. And as I've related many times, this has gone on 
uh, many, many, many different times. Now, is there a problem out there with uh, governors and authority? Certainly there is. There are governors of blue states that are, uh, in, have instituted some egre very egregious rules during this, during this uh, so-called lockdown and have violated civil rights. And I hear Christians who get so concerned, well, we're losing the battle. Well, you've got to get on the right email list. Liberty Council gets, sends out an email almost every day talking about the great victories they're winning in the courtroom. Because every time a government issues some egregious uh, mandate that stomps on the First Amendment, Liberty Council is taking them to court w within a week. And what's happening is the judges, we don't hear this part of it, the judges are overturning those, those decisions made by those governors because we have judges in this country that still uphold the Constitution and protect uh, the first, second, all the other amendments. And so that's a great thing to rejoice about and, um, and to not be discouraged about. Certainly there's a trend towards anarchy. What do you expect? We're living in the devil's world. The devil wants to destroy the United States, and he always had. And then on the other side, you hear Christians, and they, they get all excited about certain things that are happening technologically, things with vaccines. So they're going to use vaccines to insert some kind of tracking device into every Christian's. You know, God's in control, people. Uh, does this have anything to do with the mark of the beast? Well, let's stop a minute. The mark of the beast is going to be a ta something like a tattoo. That's what the word means, okay? It's going to be visible on the forehead or on the back of the hand. That's what Scripture says. When does the mark of the beast come into effect? After the middle of the tribulation, we're at least three and a half years away from it. What happens in the first three and a half years? Well, first you have the six seal judgments, then you have the six trumpet judgments. By the time you've had the sixth seal judgment, I don't think you're going to have a power plant operational in the world. I don't think you're going to have any electricity. There's not going to be any Internet. You're going to, the world's going to go through, number one, these massive tectonic shifting earthquakes. We're not talking about a 7.9 on the Richter scale. We're talking about a 17.9 on the Richter scale. Massive earthquakes that shake continents, not just shake... Uh, California and split it off. It's going to be massive wars that are going to be uh, taking place during this time that are beyond anything that we, we, we've ever had. That's why they're a sign is because they're unlike any wars that have ever taken place before. And then there's going to be this, this meteor shower that comes in the sixth seal and a massive meteor shower on that scale isn't going to leave your telephone lines up. You think a little hailstorm wipes out your power for 24, 48 hours. That's nothing compared to what this is going to do. It's probably going to take out the electronic grid. So how many scanners are going to work? How many ARFID chips are going to be able to be read after you take out the power grid? You know, we, we just have to think biblically about these things, and we're, and we're not going to be here, so why are we worried? Our mission isn't to be concerned about warning the world that oh, this could lead to the Antichrist. Our mission is to, war to warn the world that if they don't accept Jesus Christ, they won't have everlasting life. 
And we're getting distracted from the mission by focusing on the problem instead of the solution. So we see this thing happen, and all these different articles I read about Christians and gullibility in the last week, it, it's nothing new, but it's shameful. And to realize how many people are just sharing willy-nilly all of these different conspiracy theories, I don't care if there's some truth in some of them. I don't know enough, and neither does anybody who sent me any of these things. And, you know, The only people I talk to are people who are, have degrees as medical doctors, they're the only ones who can really tell me whether anything in these videos are, are accurate. I had a, uh, a pastor in England send me one. He didn't have any way of judging whether it was true or accurate. He sent it to me. He said, said, can you look at this and tell me if this is right or wrong? I said, I don't have a medical degree. I don't have a clue, and I don't have an hour and a half to focus on it. But I'll send it to one of my friends that's a medical doctor and have them evaluate it because they at least have the brains to be able to evaluate what's going on. And, and, and we have to avoid being deceived, and, and sheep are easily deceived. The fact that God calls us sheep is not, not a good thing here. Sheep are easily deceived and easily distracted, and we're demonstrating that as the body of Christ, and this is uh, terribly uh, dishonoring. So we need to be be very, very careful. And then we have the problem of, of what I call sort of a, 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 a tunnel focus. And that is we have many people who, thank God for them, are watchdogs on the Constitution and watchdogs on civil liberty. But, folks, we, this pandemic is a worldwide thing. This attack on civil liberties, if you want to call it that, isn't restricted to the U.S. One of the real sad and tragic things in in modern history is that Americans are among the most ignorant about the world of any people in the world. How many of y'all, don't raise your hands, try to read newspapers from other countries to get another perspective? How many of you read... Uh, I know some people read newspapers in foreign languages if they know foreign languages. How many of you are intimately involved and acquainted with other nations or people in other nations? Just today, I've talked to a guy in Sweden. I've talked to somebody in Ukraine. I've talked to somebody in Israel. I I have talked to uh, people in England. I have a couple of men in my Friday morning class, and I have sent out emails to get feedback from some of our listeners who are in Australia to find out what's going on in these other cultures. And guess what? A lot of people think that this is so horrible. Look at these lockdowns in the U.S. Well, some places needed it. I think New York City really did, a few other places. But most of this country did not need this. But, but um, we have so much misinformation. I read one great article by a pastor today that talked about how really for the first three weeks we all went along because nothing like this had ever happened. And then we began to question how the data was being interpreted, and that was important. But one of the models that was out there that I've heard some people, and I thought for a while was seemed to be good, but we were getting false information, was the Swedish model for battling the coronavirus. What was the Swedish model? They didn't close down anything. They kept the movie theaters open, the businesses open, they did some social distancing, people wore masks, things like that, but they kept it going. And a lot of people thought, well, that was a great 
thing to do. They kept the economy going. They didn't shut everything down. Now, an article came out from uh, Gatestone Institute that was quite solid earlier on this week, on May 9th, a couple of days ago, by Judith Bergman. She, she said that Sweden has a population of 10.18 million people. How big is that? Greater Houston is about 9 million. Okay, Use that for a little point of comparison. Of those 10.18 million people, there were 2,854 deaths. Okay, so in, in um, Greater Houston, uh, we've got approximately 343 deaths. Okay, Sweden has a death of 2,854. Do you think that by not locking down that they, had an, that they did okay? Harris County, which is almost the same population, only had 343 deaths compared to 2,854. In the other Nordic countries, Denmark, Norway, and Finland, the highest death rate was 503. Uh, the other two were 215 and 246 deaths, respectively. They, they locked down and had, um, you know, had quarantine. Not as severe as some other places, but it was a, a great difference. So uh, when I emailed, this is a listener who, avid listener in, in Sweden and gone to Israel with me before, and he, and he was telling me how great it was three or four weeks ago, and I said, we've been lied to. Uh, even, even the death rate of 2,854 isn't, isn't accurate. There's a lot more deaths than that. And they're just not reporting it for a lot of different reasons. In Ukraine, they shut down very rapidly, as we all know, because Igor and Julia were here, and they left, barely got back uh, before everything shut down. Uh, they have a population, uh, I, I'm not sure what the total population of the country is. I think it's around 30 million-something, but they've had, they've confirmed over 16,000 cases, but they don't have a great testing network, so they, we, that's not that important. But they've only had 425 deaths. Remember, uh, Greater Houston has had 343 deaths. So they've done, a, and they have probably, you know, three times, four times the number of people in uh, Ukraine than, than in, in uh, Houston. So they've done a remarkable job of containing it. And, um, and then the other is Israel. Israel has a, 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 I don't know the total population, but they've had 6,529 cases and 260 deaths. They were shutting everything down completely when I was still in Ukraine. You know, February 24th, 25th, 26th, no more flights from Europe. They were, they were starting to shut everything down. By the time we even started the, um, uh, the Chafer Conference, you remember that was March 9th. By the time we started the Chafer Conference, Israel was completely locked down. Nobody could go more than 100 yards away from their home. Last week it was reported that 80% of Israel hadn't had a new case in in over um and in, in, in over a week and now it's been even longer this last monday they are it was either this last monday or this next monday they're opening up elementary schools first to third grade people are now given permission to go visit their grandparents they were prohibited by the government to visit their grandparents love your grandparents talk to them zoom them everything but don't go see them let them live they have kept the death rate among the at-risk elderly down to a very small number because of what they did. 
Okay, the U.S. hasn't been as across the board. We're much larger, has not been as severe. But when we have people who complain about what's happened here, we have to look around and say, well, did anybody else do it, do it like we did? Yeah, they were a lot more heavy-handed than we were. Now, we don't know what's going along in some African countries and some other places like that. We have no idea how many cases there are or what they did. But what we do know is that the U.S. was not unique, was not distinct. We made mistakes, but so did everybody else. But what we did was had a significant impact. Nobody knew what to do when this thing started. And so we need to keep all of that kind of stuff in, in perspective. My point is that, let's go back to our pa- passage. If you were an Israelite and Absalom's heading up the highway from Hebron and David is fleeing down the Kidron Valley, you think it's all falling apart. And you're thinking, what's going on here? And that's what a lot of us are asking. What is happening? And so we're prone to fear. We're prone to worry. We're prone to believe all these conspiracy theories. And they had conspiracy theories then, and there was a conspiracy. We have conspiracy theories now, and there may be one or two. Remember, the great conspirator is Satan. He's doing, he's orchestrating the whole thing. But God gives him permission. And whenever we look out on the world and we see something like what we've experienced in our life, we've experienced something that is, I think, the most significant thing in 2,000 years. We've seen the whole world locked down because of a virus. We've seen millions of people lose their job. Economies totally wrecked because of the response to this coronavirus. We have seen, we're going to see the the you know the unintended consequences of this reverberate for for years and we have no idea what this means we are inside the action my training in uh, my undergraduate work was in history most of my work in philosophy was in the philo- history of philosophy my phd work was the history of christianity one of the key principles in history is when you're in the event you don't have any perspective to properly understand it. You'll hear a lot of pastors who came out and said, oh, this is a judgment of God. Well, did you say that about homosexuality? Because Romans 1 actually says that about homosexuality, but it doesn't necessarily say that about viruses here. It said that about viruses to Israel, but we ain't Israel. You know, we have to get away from it. If you were living in America in 1924, so roaring 20s, great prosperity, we've been out of a war for six or seven years, out of World War I. World War I started in 1914, ended in 1918. And then there were a lot of unintended consequences, some good, some bad, that came out of World War I. The roaring 20s and the boom back, all of that was great. What happened as a result of that and the irresponsibility associated with it? We had the collapse of the stock market and the Great Depression. And the Great Depression was worldwide. And, and what came out of that? What, what that gave birth to in Munich, Germany, was the National Socialist Workers' Party. Notice it was a socialist party, the Nazis. The Nazi, uh, what was it? The National Socialistische Arbeiters Party. 
you know, the National Socialist Workers Party. That came out, that was an uncanny consequence of, of World War I. It was a result of the egregious armistice that was signed in 1918. Winston Churchill made the very wise observation that we had a 30 years war in the 20th century. Part one was World War I and part two was World War II with a period of 20 years of peace in between. But it was one consistent war. Everything that happened from 1914 to 1945 was part of God's plan for the post-World War II world. Have you ever looked at it that way? But if you were asked this in 1925, you would have no idea whatever you said would be wrong. You could not have answered what's going on here in the world. What is God's plan right now? You would have no idea what was going on. Good things. 1924, Dallas Seminary was founded. You had a lot of missions work. You had a lot of genuine, solid Bible teaching. You had splits in major denominations so that the Bible-believing Christians could get out from under the liberalism of those denominations. You had many good things and some bad things happen. You had, you know, we went through prohibition. We went through the roaring 20s, and then we went through the Depression. You look at Europe, and you look at all the things that, that, that went on there. But we had no idea what was happening. What was one of the great things that came out of World War II, World War I? The Balfour Declaration, the, the protection given through the, um, the Balfour Declaration and the uh, post-World War I uh, decisions that were made by the Allied powers to set apart uh, Israel as the ho- national homeland for, for the uh, Jewish people that came out at San Remo. We just had the 100th anniversary of San Remo a week ago. And so this laid the foundation from 1920 with the San Remo resolutions until 1948, a 28-year period. I think everything was driven by Israel. Europe is anti-Semitic to the core. The Nazis come out. They develop the Holocaust. God uses the Holocaust to bring the Jews back to their national homeland. They, they uh, carry out their war for independence and establish a national state in 1948. We look at all of that, but in 1924, if you're living in Houston, Texas, or Dallas, Texas, or Nacogdoches, Texas, or St. Louis, Missouri, or wherever you're living, and somebody said, well, what is God doing right now? You wouldn't have a clue, and what I'm saying is, you and I do not have a clue what is going on with this pandemic. Some people may guess and get something right, but a stopped watch is right twice a day. Same thing was happening in Israel. It was chaos. What's, what, what, what had to be learned? What had to be learned is the lesson that David was learning. Grace orientation, submission to the authority of God, and trusting in God and carrying out his mission. And that is where we are as believers. We have a mission. We have a mission to represent the Lord Jesus Christ to this planet and to carry the gospel to the unsaved and to challenge them with, to a full knowledge of Scripture so that they can, as Jesus said, obey all that I have taught you. That's our mission. And we dare not be distracted from that mission. And all of this stuff that stimulates everybody's glands by watching all this stuff on the news and hearing all this other stuff is a distraction from our God-given holy mission. And it gets us worried, and it gets us upset, and it gets us uh, anxious, and we just all need to relax. 
Nothing like this has ever happened in the world's history. That tells us God's doing something. So let's just sit back and enjoy it. We know how it's all going to turn out. We know God's in control. So let's get our eyes off of our 401Ks and off of our children's education and off of all these things that we can't do anything about. We're just going to have to wait and see and just trust in the Lord with all our heart and don't lean on your own understanding. And in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will bring it to pass. pass. We just need to relax and trust him. Nothing, nothing new is happening. And God wasn't surprised by this. And he is allowing it to happen for a reason. So we need to just relax, go about our daily responsibilities, and be faithful in the mission the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. Father, thank you for this time we have tonight to think about these things, to relate the kind of events that were going on in this Absalom rebellion to what we're facing in our world and in our life today. And we pray that you would help us to just calm down, relax, rest, trust in you, that no matter what happens, you are in control, and we are to carry out our responsibilities and let you take care of the rest. And we pray that you would strengthen us in that resolve. In Christ's name, amen.